Mindfulness Mode 475. It gives you power in your life. It empowers you to be happy regardless of what's going on around you. Welcome to Mindfulness Mode, everybody. Great to have you here. I'm going to be on an online summit, and it's called the Inspirational Leadership Summit. I'm really excited to be a guest on this summit, and there are some fantastic other guests and a lot of them on this summit. I think you'll really enjoy it. There are over 35 speakers on the summit. And you can go to that and get in for free. It's a free summit. And there is an opportunity for a VIP version of the summit, which is paid. But check it out. It's mindfulnessmode.com slash I-L-S, Inspirational Leadership Summit. Today, I'm talking with a guest about chocolate. And I'm a person who loves chocolate and I like to eat dark chocolate once in a while. I don't usually eat other kinds of chocolate, but Diane talks about the mindfulness of chocolate and she's even written a book about it. Diane is a tremendous source about mindfulness, very knowledgeable. I think you'll enjoy our interview. It's fascinating. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my time here today with Diane R. Heart. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I'm so excited today because we are going to be talking about chocolate and not just chocolate, the mindfulness of chocolate. This is going to be so much fun. And guess what? I have the person who wrote the book on mindfulness and chocolate right here with me. It's Diane Gayhart. Diane, are you in mindfulness mode today? Absolutely, Bruce. (laughs) It's so much fun to have you here. And it was so much fun to read the book. And I'll say that, but I'll also say, don't get the wrong impression. This is not a light, little, fluffy book about mindfulness and chocolate. It's a book filled with wisdom, filled with all kinds of in-depth research and knowledge, but also the witty, fun Diane Gayhart, who has the greatest sense of humor. Diane, what does mindfulness mean to you? Well, I mean, there's kind of a basic definition of mindfulness. I think that most of us agree on there are three basic components, but there's a there's one piece that I, I think a lot of us miss. So the three basic pieces we always hear about is first, it's an intentional focusing on a single object or phenomenon in the present moment. The second piece is you do it with compassion. And that's actually hard for a lot of us who sit there going, oh my God, why can't you focus for five seconds? You're such a loser. So you're not supposed to do that. And the third part is to do it with acceptance, accepting what is. And if you spend any time trying to quiet your mind and watch it, there's a lot of jumping around and going back and forth. And sometimes you have thoughts you don't even like. And that's what it means to be human. That is what our minds do. So accepting what that is. But the piece that I think that sometimes gets missed is that it is intentional. And so sometimes I've had some of my students have said, well, you know, I go running and I am in mindful when I'm running. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 you're in flow. And flow is different. It's a byproduct of an activity like running or gardening or some kind of focused activity, but it kind of just It's a byproduct. It just happens without us intentionally doing it. 
And let me tell you, flow is always enjoyable. Mindfulness may or may not be enjoyable every time, but mindfulness is intentional. And so it's you telling your mind to quiet, to focus on your breath or piece of chocolate and what it tastes like, what it smells like, what it feels like, and trying to quiet that inner chatter. There's an intention there that's part of it. And that's really important. And the, the other part that's really important with that intention is that you and you're you're asking your mind, trying to quiet your mind, and then it is going to wander. That is that is just part of what the human mind does, often within seconds. And then you intentionally refocus. And it's the refocusing where we get the real psychological benefits that most of us in the 21st century who are practicing mindfulness are going for. And so it's intentional, and that intention is what helps you. Um, where you intentionally refocus is really where you get the benefits for stress, depression, and anxiety. Well, Diane, I love the titles of your chapters. They're so funny and they're so creative. And like I said, this chapter is called From Chocoholism to Chocolate Snobbery. You tell us that making progress toward achieving goals is more likely to promote happiness than the final achievement. And you even cite research by doctors Hannah Klug and Gunter Beyer. And it's just so interesting. Let's talk about that, how it's it's more about the progress toward achieving goals that can make us happy. And there is a lot of research out of the area of positive psychology. These are the psychologists who just study happiness. It's what they do. And what they have found is that when you achieve a major goal, like getting a promotion, buying a house, even getting married, that typically there's just a boost in happiness for about two to three months. And then you go back to your default setting. But what these researchers have found more recently is that when you're working towards a meaningful goal and making progress towards that goal, there's actually longer sustained periods of happiness. And so it's actually when you're working towards a meaningful goal, you're more likely to be happy. And that when you achieve that goal, there may be a boost in happiness for a few months, but it quickly goes back down to nothing. And I've noticed as I'm a professor in a marriage family therapy program here in California, and I always tell my graduate students who are like, finally, I got my degree. I'm going to be free. This is going to be great. I'm going to get a great job. They're all excited. And then I always say, be careful though, because within a month or two after getting this, you're actually likely to go into a bit of a depression. And sure enough, they write me, they're like, so thank you for warning me because it, it happens. And that's, we often don't anticipate that because when we're working towards a goal, we're we're so invested in, you know, looking forward to achieving it, not realizing that a lot of the joy is in the journey. Yeah, it definitely is. I want to share a bit about you with Mindful Tribe. Listeners, Diane Gayhart is a PhD. She's an author. She's an award-winning professor of counseling and family therapy at California State University, Northridge, and a practicing psychotherapist. Some of the other areas of specialty that Diane works in are she's into Buddhist psychology, sexual abuse, gender, relationships, mental health, recovery, and so many different areas. Diane also teaches mindfulness to kids, and this is a very important area too. Her research has been featured in newspapers, radio shows, and television worldwide. And this new book, Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers is so fantastic because it combines humor and wisdom and so much more to 
help you to really truly understand what mindfulness is all about and how to bring it into your life to make a huge difference. So I think it's wonderful that you're sharing all this with our audiences. You teach that in the West, we think of happiness as a thing. It's something we can work toward or seek out, whereas the Buddhist approach sees happiness as a verb. So that's really a different approach, isn't it, Diane? It is a totally different way to think about happiness, to look at happiness. It gives you power in your life. It empowers you to be happy regardless of what's going on around you and to find peace regardless of what's going on around you. And it's, I think the mind just naturally kind of our default state is to, we want the external world to just to be what we want it to be. And ah, then we can be happy. And if you live your life like that, you're going to be a control freak. You'll be, be trying to control every person, every environment, every factor around you. And you're going to get really neurotic and likely depressed because you really cannot control other people. This includes our partners and spouses. And if that's how you, if you're feeling like everyone has to be just the way you need them for be, to be, for you to be happy, you're not going to be very happy. And so when you learn to see that and learn there, and it's amazing what the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago and what positive psychologists are saying today, they overlap on what actually leads to long-term happiness. And so as you cultivate those habits, and, and in many ways, it's cultivating the habit of happiness. And activities like mindfulness are highly correlated and very important and central to this habit of happiness. Well, this book begs the question, don't we run a risk of developing you know, obesity or problems with our weight, you know, I mean, the habit of chocolate, it sounds enticing, but come on, how are we going to deal with this, Diane? Well, if you actually read the book to the end, in the last chapter, I reveal that the chocolate is just a way to invite you in. You're not going to be eating boxes of chocolate. In fact, you'll probably eat less chocolate than you used to if you actually get to the end of the book. Um, but the, the purpose of chocolate, it is actually something most of us are familiar with. And it's actually something that many of us have emotions around and lots of thoughts and beliefs around. And so we, I use chocolate meditation as a way to invite you to watch how your mind makes meaning. And through this exercise, it is a mind. So you get the benefits of mindfulness by doing a mindfulness eating exercise, but you also get to see how your mind makes meaning. And when you encounter problems, your mind is making meaning around those. And if you can watch that, see how it's happening, you then have choice and you're not just going to react to the problems that come up in your life. It helps develop the skill to be able to choose how you respond. And so even though it sounds kind of silly and ridiculous in one level, it's not like this strict, stern, let's sit there and watch ourselves breathe, you know, in an empty room, doing nothing for 20 minutes. It doesn't have the discipline of that. It is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to invite you to do mindfulness and make it something you want to do every day. You know, my recommendation is to get a beautiful bowl that you love, put it on your desk, on your kitchen counter. And every day, either at your coffee break in the morning or after lunch, just do one, two to five minutes of mindful chocolate eating to practice the mindfulness and to watch your mind in work. It's actually a fairly advanced form of mindfulness. I and mean, it takes a lot of discipline to watch what your mind does in, during this meditation. And I think it's a lot, it's many of us just 
forget to meditate or we can't make time to meditate. And I think when you have this concrete reminder in front of you every day on, you know, my desk at work or whatever, that you're more likely to do it. And the key really is to do a little bit of mindfulness every day, or at least my recipe is five days a week where you have that routine and you build it in. Even if it's 60 seconds, it makes a difference. Well, I love your humor in this book. And chapter six is a great example how you start off chapter six with the first page. Now, if you haven't read this book, get your hands on it, Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers, and go to chapter six to the first page, and then you'll see some humor. I don't know if you want to share that right now, Diane, with our listeners as to what that humor actually is, but I have never seen this before in a book that I've written. So it's it's really hilarious. Oh, I'm glad you think so. Well, let's just say I wanted you to practice what, I want the reader to experience what crazy wisdom feels like, what it looks like, what it can be. And I guess I can just say there's a little bit of a practical joke embedded at the beginning of chapter six. Yes, there is. And I noticed in this book, you talk a fair bit about pain and about how we can learn from our pain and we can learn Mm -hmm. to embrace the suffering. Now, this is part of Buddhist teaching. Let's talk about pain and how that can help us actually live a more happy life. Definitely. And I mean, we all, you cannot go through this life without experiencing suffering. And that is part of it. And I think that one of the real keys to happiness is learning how to engage that suffering in an effective and meaningful way. And so, and you know, it's not about, and it's important not to get real Pollyanna, you know, oh, there's a silver lining to every cloud. Yeah. That's not going to get us through. And that doesn't get us to where happiness becomes a real habit for you. But it's learning to actually be mindfully present with suffering. And that is something we do not have a lot of good examples for doing in the West. I mean, that is just not part of our culture, which is why mental health issues are just skyrocketing, escalating. The rates of mental health issues in our youth have doubled. Up to 50% of youth under the age of 18 will qualify for a major mental health disorder, and that has doubled in the last 10 years. And so we have to learn and teach our children how to be present with that pain and with that suffering. And that when you sit with it, when you ex- you experience it, it shifts. I swear to God, I promise you. If you can quiet your mind and your emotion to feel that hurt, that sadness, that anger, that rage, and sit with it. And don't let your mind play lots of little games. That's where actually chocolate meditation helps. You begin to see how your mind plays games. And it does it when I, there's a minor form of suffering in chocolate meditation where I make you hold that piece of chocolate right to your lips. If you love chocolate, you're like dying and frustrated. And if you don't really like chocolate, you're like dreading it. But I, you know, watching how your mind deals with that little tiny moment of suffering in chocolate meditation helps you learn how to do it for the big thing. Diane, you know, one of the things I loved about your book, it's so many exercises you included, which are really cool. And one of the exercises that pops right into my head is about the one where you hide the chocolate in surprising places. Let's talk about that. It's so much fun. I love it. I love it. Yeah, this is part of the crazy wisdom kind of practical joke chapter. And it's not just all practical jokes. It's ones that actually help create happiness and joy and bring wisdom. And so one of, yeah, I call it chocolate meditation number three. 
And for this exercise, I ask that you find some pieces of chocolate and put them around either your workplace or your house with little notes on them to inspire, to make people laugh. And it's that element of surprise that catches you off guard. And in those moments, you're not in your kind of automatic everyday routine. And the Buddhists talk a lot about how that aha, that surprise moment, your mind opens up to new ideas in a new way. You can see things in a different way. There is, I I call crazy wisdom, the back door to happiness where mindfulness is like the front door. It kind of makes sense, you know, how that's going to work. But this playfulness in a joyful way that inspires kindness and love and just being able to engage life suffering in a more effective way. So yeah, I encourage you to just add a little joy to the lives of those around you with a little bit of chocolate and kind of surprising ways with cute little sayings. Another thing I liked was when you talked about what mindfulness isn't, because I Mm -hmm. think that's important to know. What is that? What is mindfulness not? part of? Well, you know, I think the most important thing to understand is that mindfulness is not about stopping your thoughts. I mean, when you stop your thoughts, you're in a coma or you're dead. And that really is not the goal of this practice. And so I have so many people who are like, oh, you know, I've tried mindfulness. I'm just not good at it. My mind keeps wandering. And my response is great. That is evidence that you are alive. This is excellent. And that all of us, our minds wander all the time. And the more you do it, yes, the less it wanders. But when when I have a stressful day, my mind wanders more. And it's a key for me, a sign for me, like, let's go look at that calendar. You're pretty stressed out. And so I think that's one important thing to know. It's not about stopping your thoughts. It's about watching your thoughts, being in dialogue, becoming an observer. You're not going to, you know, for better or worse, you do not develop powers like levitation or any other special magical powers. It may or may not actually relax you. There are some days, so if you're new to the practice of mindfulness, I'm just going to be the first to warn you that you may or may not feel more relaxed afterwards. Usually you do, but not every time. But that's okay. That's It's a practice. It's something you keep going back to day in and day out. And as you do that, you literally rewire your brain. And as I mentioned earlier, it's really important to distinguish it from flow. And I always say flow is wonderful. It's actually highly correlated with Happiness is one of the habits you can have is to engage in activities till you develop a sufficient amount of skill so that you have flow. A flow state is a pleasurable experience that can come from creating art, doing running. Football players will always describe how they feel like they're in flow when they're making their passes. You're just kind of in sync with everything. It's wonderful. You want lots of flow activity, but it is different than mindfulness because mindfulness is something you intentionally sit down, basically force yourself to do where the flow comes from activities that you've really gotten good at. Now, Diane, you talk about the four noble truths, which are part of Buddhism. Do you consider yourself a Buddhist? Wow, that is a tough question. I have studied a lot of Buddhism, but I was actually raised Catholic. And those metaphors still kind of fit with me. I still celebrate Christmas and Easter. You know, it's funny. Buddhism helped me understand Christianity in a much clearer way. And so I I have a, I have clearly, I I do Buddhist meditation and I love the Buddhist teachings, but I also, I was raised, you know, here in the West and I'm familiar with the Christian teachings too. And so I draw from both of them in terms of my, you know, spiritual practices. Well, what I've noticed is that some people think that if you embrace some of the Buddhism practices, that means you're not Christian, but that's not true at all. They can really support each other, right? 
Absolutely. In fact, there are Catholic monks who are also Zen masters. And so, because Buddhism is atheistic, it doesn't say there's a God. Buddha is not a God. Buddha is a man who figured out how to, how to overcome suffering. And so, and most of the Buddhist literature, which I did study in the original Chinese and Tibetan um, in my earlier years, I can't read it anymore, but I did it one time. Um, they really talk about, it's really Buddhist psychology. So many of their teachings are more about, rather than being like what we would call religion in the West, they really are about how do you engage suffering? There's so much psychology in the Buddhist teachings about how humans can best engage suffering and understand the mind. So much of the teachings are also about why do, what is the mind? Let's watch the mind. What are the different states of the mind? And how do we use these to alleviate human suffering? Diane, you share a story about a roomy poem where a man climbs uh, into a walnut tree and he drops the walnuts to the ground. Tell that story to us, will you? And the meaning behind it. So I love Rumi. Absolutely. I think there's so much wisdom in Rumi, but he has his poem about a man who climbs a walnut tree and down below is a little pond. He's up in the walnut tree and he's dropping the walnuts into the water. And then another man comes walking by and says, hey, why are you doing that? By the time you come down, all the walnuts are going to be gone. And the man says, I'm dropping these walnuts, not for food, but for the music that they make when they hit together. And that's, I, I share that that's kind of how I see chocolate in the end also. This is not about eating chocolate for the meditation. It's about doing the practice and seeing the wisdom that comes from doing mindful meditation. So I, I kind of say that, you know, chocolate is my walnut. It is, it is a tool I am using to practice learning how to better engage suffering, to understand happiness, understand my mind, um, so that I can engage life in a more effective way. I love how you finish the book. And I'm not going to tell this secret either, because the way you finish the book is it's a secret morsel to savor. And it's only <laughs> left for someone who reads the book, right? <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. I mean, how many are there who actually read a book, you know, front to cover? Yeah, well, it's it's great. I, I thought it was really, really good. Tell us some ways that you personally practice mindfulness in your life. Okay. So I will let you know, I'm an extremely busy person. I run a graduate program with nearly 200 students, oversee 30 faculty. I'm a single mom of two elementary school age boys, and I have a private practice where I see a lot of clients every week. So I'm a very busy person. And so I think that's part of the reason why I've really tried to develop a practical approach to mindfulness. And so I, I, my practice is I sit down and I do breath meditation every day. And I actually have it in my to-do list. So when I get to the office, if I fail to remember to practice mindfulness, you know, while I was getting dressed, and one of my suggestions always is find something you do five days a week, every day, like part of the routine, it never varies. So I always get dressed, brush my teeth. And I really, I think it's important to think of mindfulness more like flossing rather than some luxurious spa moment activity. And I personally do not enjoy flossing, but I do do it every day. And I, that's because normally when you're in a busy life, you're running around taking care of kids, family, work, you don't feel like meditating because you're kind of in a stressed out state. And so you pair it with something you're going to do every day. And you say, I'm going to do it whether I feel like it or not. And so I meditate every day, I, you know, before I walk out of my bedroom, I sit down and, you know, meditate for five minutes or so if it's a busy day. And if it's a truly, truly busy day, 
I at least do 60 seconds mm. because even 60 seconds changes your mindset. You have a placeholder for that habit. You come back to it. It feels weird not to, you know, do it. And I have a place that I can see where I, you know, sit down where I do it the same place every day. And it's a habit now. And so certainly on days where I have more time, I can do it for longer, but I always do it for at least 60 seconds to keep that placeholder, to keep that habit going. Um, and so that's how I, and I, and if I fail to do it, my my to-do list smacks me when I sit down at work. Before you do your email, sit down and meditate so that you can be in a better state for everyone that you interact with today. And also so that you can have, so I can have a better day. So Diane, I always ask a, a question about bullying. Do you have a story where maybe you were bullied or you were a bully or some kind of story where mindfulness would have made a difference? Well, I, I do have a story about bullying because I teach mindfulness at an elementary school and preschool. So from three-year-old to 12-year-old, I come in with a team of graduate students who run a mindfulness program and the whole school gets it. All the kids get it. Mindfulness every fall. We'll be starting in a couple of weeks here. Um, but every fall they go through this program, they all learn mindfulness and we teach it to help them focus on their schoolwork. And so teachers you know, can ring a chime to help them focus. And we also teach it about kindness. And I really emphasize that we talk about flipping your lid when you go in, we call it, that's the term we use out of Dan Siegel's work for when you get stressed. And so we, um, I teach them about flipping their lid, how to recognize it. And I say, one of the most important things in life is to never, ever, ever tell one of your friends that they flipped their lid, tell anyone that they flipped their lid because they're just going to flip their lid more. So anyway, one day I was walking onto the campus to teach and um, several students come running up to me and they're like, Dr. Gayhart, Dr. Gayhart, the other day in PE, Garrett got hurt and he flipped his lid. And I was like, oh, what happened? And they're like, so we helped him put his lid back on. Mm. We walked him down to the office and we helped him put his lid back on. And later that year, I actually had the opportunity to do some qualitative interviews with these third, fourth and fifth graders. And it was amazing. But one of the things they said is that they felt like because of the mindfulness program, they were all kinder to one another. And I actually, I don't have proof for this yet, but my, my, my hypothesis is that there actually becomes peer pressure that when you flip your lid and you become mean like that, everyone knows your prefrontal cortex is not on. You flipped your lid. It's a little embarrassing. And I think they do it less. But the students were saying that a lot of the bullying stopped with this mindfulness program because they understood more where it was coming from. They were less reactive to it. So they didn't, it didn't escalate as much. And I think there was peer pressure to not flip your lid. I think that's a great story, Diane. As we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second okay. answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Dalai Lama. It's where I really learned it all from. Mm. So my biggest inspiration. Wonderful. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? You've talked about that a bit already, but let's let's hear a summary of it. Well, I'm half Greek, so you know I got big emotions in here, uh -huh. and so. But the mindfulness has just helped me to find peace, even in really difficult situations and very difficult times that I've been through. And so it is. It really has changed how I relate to my emotions entirely. You mentioned about breathing, but tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness. I mean, I use breath meditation where I focus on my uh, breathing and it is amazing. There is something I think when you practice this for a while where this deep just sense of peace comes over 
And part of me is like, wow, all you have to focus on for the next five minutes is your breath. And it is like a vacation from the rest of my life. So the breathing, just focusing on my breathing has become this place, this sanctuary, really, of where I can find peace in the middle of very hectic days. Mm, Beautiful. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness besides this fantastic book called Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers, (laughs) and I do recommend that book, but what other book would you recommend, Diane? Well, you know, I want people to actually practice mindfulness every day, and I like for it to be simple, engaging. That's when when most people are going to use it. So my book for that is really Thich Nhat Hanh's Peace is Every Step. It's these tiny little one to two page chapters with simple exercises like dishwashing meditation. I hate washing dishes, but after that book, I can now meditate while I do my dishes and it's a lot more palatable. But I just think it really introduces just very simple ways to add mindfulness in in everyday life. You mentioned some apps in your book, but can you share now with, with us an app or two that can help with mindfulness? Absolutely. Personally, I use Insight Timer because I think people who are newer prefer guided stuff, but I like Insight Timer. And I've actually tested all of the different gongs that they have on that and chimes. And there is one that lasts for 60 seconds. And that's what I use with my kids in the morning because kids actually uh, do, uh, they like to listen to the chime more than focus on their breath. It's easier for them. So I'm a huge fan of Insight Timer. But when I'm having my uh, clients learn mindfulness, adolescents and adults. The one favorite one that we have found is really Headspace because it kind of slowly introduces it to you step by step. It's kind of like going to your personal mindfulness class. And so that's a really good one if you're just starting out. Well, I know that you can be found at mindfulnessforchocolatelovers.com. That's a, a website where your book is featured. And of course, your own name DianeGayhart.com is one of your websites, and Gayhart is spelled G-E-H-A-R-T. Is there any place else we should connect with you, Diane? Well, um, you might be interested in my mindfulness for school, uh, wait, mindfulschool.net. Um, so this is a website I created as part of a research project to disseminate my research findings to the general public. And I created a website that allows schools to create a cost-effective mindfulness program. And it is mindful school singular dot net. And you'll see actually the videos of what I do with the kids. You can meet Bob, the iguana who helps me teach the class. He is the personification of the lizard brain or stress response. So that's a great one. And I also just put out a website, again, is part of a disseminating research. It's called screentimeforfamilies.net. I kind of review the research on the brain and the effects of screen time for youth and then kind of give recommendations for parents to help to know what to do. So those are some of the, uh, I think screen time and the brain, the effects of the brain and screen time are, is related to the work I do with mindfulness. So awesome. So start with mindfulnessforchocolatelovers.com, get the book, and then go to these other sites and learn more about Diane. It's been so great talking with you, Diane. Thanks for being on Mindfulness Mode. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Bruce. My pleasure. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash 
whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. Remember to sign up for the free online summit, the Inspirational Leadership Summit. Go to mindfulnessmode.com slash I-L-S, Inspirational Leadership Summit. So many terrific interviews, a science-based look at leadership in today's world. The world's most respected thought leaders and experts reveal strategies on how to become an inspirational leader achieve health, happiness, and success. This summit starts November 5th, goes November 5th to the 7th with over 35 speakers, including me, yours truly. So exciting to be on the summit. So remember, Mindful Tribe, use what we learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.